Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. Tonight, our speaker is Barb C. Hi, I'm Barbara. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Hi. Thanks, David, for asking me to share. And um, welcome to the people that are in their first 30 days. I was told that um, you wished that I would hear something that would keep me coming back. And what I heard in these rooms was you guys were saying things that had been in my head since I was a very little girl. And um, I'd been trying to express those thoughts to people for a very long time. And what they did, and I'm not sure they actually did this, was they kind of backed away and looked a little scared because I would say, you know, when you're thinking this and you want to kick a dog and kill your mother, you know, and they're like, (laughs) you know, and that, that kind of sharing really didn't go over very well with normal folk. And it didn't go over well in the bars either. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I heard people being very honest, and I identified with that. And it was the first time in my life that I had identified um, with uh, anything, quite honestly. Um, what I was told that from the podium, you share what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And um, so what it was like, and, and hold on to your seats. This is pretty exciting stuff. <laughs> I'm a boring alcoholic, um, kind of run-of-the-mill. I don't have any great stories to tell. Um, but what I have is a pure alcoholic mind, and I learned that in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was a very little girl, um, my earliest memories were of always feeling uncomfortable in my skin. Um, if somebody told me that I was a cute little girl, I knew that they were turning around and laughing, like, oh my God, I can't believe she believed that. What an idiot. I couldn't ever accept any um, any kindness, any generosity, um, any compliments. I never, ever said Thank you. When somebody was kind to me and gave me um, a compliment or, or uh, commented on something kind, like a, a work of art or something that I did, I really felt that um, you were laughing at me all the time. And if I went in a room when I was younger, and actually up until I got sober, and if a group of you giggled across the room, someone told a good joke or something, I thought you were laughing at me. That's how self-consumed I was. That's how much the world revolved around me. Now, I labeled that shyness. I was very shy. And I was shy to such an extreme that it it was painful to um, go to kindergarten. I I threw a complete fit. I know kids that, like, skipped off to kindergarten. I'm going to school. Not me. It was, I mean, I was drugged there, clawing and crying. I was not happy to be going there. And um, I sucked my thumb till I was eight years old. I've always had long, long hair that I've hidden behind. I had bangs. And um, I always kind of felt like I was shielding myself, hiding. I carried a blanket (laughs) till I was eight years old. 
Um, so it would cover, I was just completely cocooned from the rest of the world. And uh, I felt that way uh, up until, um, let's see, I was 16 and I had a drink. And by a drink, I mean the first time that I had an actual drink from top to bottom. Um, my father is an alcoholic, self-professed. I guess I won't be giving him the CD now. <laughs> I asked God. <laughs> I asked God about that. <laughs> and maybe I will. He's, he's always said he was. Um, my grandfather's alcoholic self-professed, and almost sort of like a, a badge of honor in my family. Um, my dad, just to give you a tiny bit of background on my family, my father's sister, um, he has a full, two full-blooded siblings and probably about 25 half-siblings. His father was married eight or nine times, my grandfather. He was an actor in Hollywood. He was very successful in his day, um, and he drank himself out of an amazing career, um, turned down the lead for South Pacific and um, in order to, uh, you know, pursue greater things, which was like the movie of its era, um, was very grandiose and very, very, very sick in this disease. And the rumor is, and there is no um, true stories in my family, nothing comes through that I actually know if it's true. It's like if it's 10 in the morning, my dad was born in Lake Arrowhead, California. Last night I called him at age 40 at about uh, right before I went to the intergroup rep meeting. And turns out he was born in Malibu. And I never knew that because it's after 5 p.m. and now he's got a whole other story going on. So um, apparently my grandfather was having an affair with um, the producer's wife of this TV series he was on. And in order to get him to stop doing that, the producer hired two thugs who pinned him down on the ground and blew his hand off. And um, I was raised being told that my grandfather was cleaning a rifle in a drunken stupor, and it was loaded, and he blew his hand off. Now, I don't know about you, but both those stories are pathetic. That's pathetic, you know, that that's, and he lost his career because you kind of need two hands to be an actor. And, um, and that's where my father came from was this man who was totally trying to fix himself from the inside out. And um, my father always had alcohol around. He, when I hear ice kind of chinking in a glass, I, I kind of get, well, it's, it's a little bit soothing and a little bit uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> More uncomfortable than soothing, quite honestly, because that's what my dad sounded like. And he was a school teacher eventually, you know, eventually after he finally kind of slugged his way through college. And he would come home, and I guess that was his reward. And um, what would happen is my mom always referred to my dad as uh, either Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde or Eve, the three faces of Eve, or Sybil. And I learned about sort of this multiple personality thing. And what that multiple personality thing is in my family is pre-alcoholic consumption, post-alcoholic consumption. And those are two entirely different people. And um, when I first got sober, I heard an AA speaker named Michael M. Her last name uh, initial is E now. And she said that she had gone to an AA meeting, and this won't be verbatim, but essentially she said that she didn't identify with anything. I am not a uh, blackout drunk, neither was she. I get to remember everything I did out there. Um, I wish that I had some blackouts because, quite honestly, um, it, there's really not a lot worth remembering. Um, she was not a blackout drinker, so she didn't identify with the blackout story. She had never gotten a DUI. Of course, she didn't own a car, <laughs> you know. But um, someone said the only thing they ever wanted in life was to just not be an alcoholic like their mother. And she identified with that. And that's what I identify with. What I wanted most in life, more than anything, was I did not want to end up like my grandfather, and I did not want to end up like my father. Um, 
So, so when my parents finally divorced and my dad finally had had one affair too many, um, trying to fill the hole. And the people in Alcoholics Anonymous seem to know what that hole is. The God hole is what I've learned to call it. Trying to fill it with booze, trying to fill it with women, trying to fill it with um, boats and cars and houses and geographics. We moved all over the place. Finally, one day, um, he decided to leave my mom. And um, that was in eighth grade. And by the time my mom took me to a wedding about three years later, um, I was so uncomfortable in my own skin. I, if I sweated, had any sweat under my arms, I, I would literally go to school just, I mean, I was just, I was just dying inside. I needed relief. And, um, I ate sugar like it was just a drug. I love sugar. And fortunately then I had a high metabolism and it, you know, just kind of dissipated right out of me. And I always was like feeding with sugar because it made me feel sort of like, you know, sort of, it was sort of like, ah. And But it was enough. And my mom took me to a wedding when I was 16, and there was a boy there named Dennis Renton, and he was very popular. And there was a lot of kids there that seemed more popular than me. And all the kids were kind of sat at this table in the kitchen. And somehow a glass, a beautiful glass, was set in front of me, and it had beer, and it was full to the top. I'd had a lot of sips in my life from my dad's drinks. I'd had a lot of alcohol exposure, but I'd never had a drink, the whole thing, mine. And uh, my mom was over, you know, diddly-daddling around, yabbering. My mom and I have a diary of the mouth. We talk a lot, a lot, a lot. And she wasn't paying attention to me. And I took that beer, and I drank it. And I, and I didn't like the taste. I'm not one of those people who was passionately in love with alcohol straight off. And um, something physically happened to me first. It was actually physical. It shot into my shoulders. It felt like kind of lava. It went <laughs> And then it went down my body. And I was like, what the? I mean, I had never experienced that. And I took another sip. This is my memory of it. And um, Dennis Renton wasn't that popular anymore. (laughs) He wasn't that cool. And the other kids in the room, they weren't that cool. In fact, I'm cool. And the room went total 180. And all of a sudden, for the first time in my first 16 years of life, I honestly was 100% comfortable in my skin. Not only was I comfortable where I'd always felt less than and not good enough, I was better than and more than enough. And I loved that feeling. And, of course, my mom bounded across the room, pulled that beer away from me. I think I got halfway through it, made a complete scene, drug me out uh, into the car. We got in our little Honda, and we headed home. And the breeze in my face felt like heaven, wings of angels. I mean, I felt Everything felt different. We went home. My mom sent me to my room, sent me to bed. I put on my headphones, and I put on the cars. One of my favorite songs was Moving in Stereo, and it moved. It was a big deal. It moved from microphone to microphone. If you put on headsets, it moves from ear to ear, left to right. And I fell asleep listening to the cars, and it was bliss. I had arrived. And from that moment on, I didn't spend one waking moment not looking for alcohol. I looked for alcohol Every minute I was awake from there on. And I looked for that feeling every minute from there on because I got relief. I had no idea that probably nine-tenths of that room didn't experience that when they put alcohol in their body. I didn't care. Who cares, really? <laughs> you know. But I didn't understand that alcohol affects me as an alcoholic. I metabolize it a certain way. Um, but I believe I was born alcoholic. I had something between my ears that was talking to me from the very beginning of my life that made me uncomfortable in my own skin, this beautiful, innocent young girl who was never enough. I mean, that's so sad. I see little kids today, and sometimes I think, oh, God, that child's an alcoholic because they're just, you know, they're just wrapped so tight 
uptight and they're really shy or they're really, you know, and I think, you know, that kid needs a drink, <laughs> you know. That would calm that child down. I know it's not legal. I'm just kidding. But I really feel like this is something I was born with. Um, so anyways, I, I'm sure none of you can relate to this. I went to high school, and I drank my way through high school. Um, I was a cheerleader. I was head cheerleader. I was on courts. I was uh, queen of those courts. I was all that with a cherry on top. I was who's who of American girls in the United States of America. And I had a great GPA, and I thought I sucked. Hated myself. I hated myself. I... Um, had a, we have a Sweet 16 contest in my hometown, and I wanted to get first place so badly. But I would have told you, what a stupid contest. All that stuff's stupid. And I did not even score in the top group of girls. There was like a bunch of us, then it went to 16, then it went to 6, and then there was top girl. I made it in the final 16 because I had a good picture. And, um, and I didn't make it past that. And when I got the news, um, I beat my face until I gave myself a black eye in a rage because I was such a piece of shit. And I remember going, you're such a piece of shit. You, f- <laughs> you, know, you suck, you suck. And, uh, and I was thinking, that's perfectly normal, isn't it? And so I missed school for two days because I, I bruised my own face. And a lot of women in recovery identify with that. I don't know if the men do, but it's sort of this trying to place these feelings somewhere where they can manifest in a bruise or something so that I can say, this is why I feel so crummy. Um, but the reality is, is I'm alcoholic. Um, I went through college, and what I decided would work for me is to stay away from God because I was raised in a Baptist church, and we were all about, you know, fire and brimstone, and I've been dunked in the dunk tank, and I've been baptized, and my ears filled with water, and I had an ear infection, and it was an awful experience, and I did it to get my mom off my back. Now I can't give my mom this CD. <laughs> um, they're taping us, by the way. And... Um, and, I mean, I did all these things to try to fit in to the planet, essentially. And when I got baptized in that church, I didn't feel any more a part of this world. And I didn't feel any more a part of that church. I didn't feel anything except misery. Except when my boyfriend would get some quarts of Schlitz malt liquor. And I felt like I was more than enough. And I fit right in. And so through college, I drank through five years of college on a four-year program. It took me a little bit longer. And um, proceeded to... Um, Moved to California. I went to college in Southern Oregon. Got a degree in elementary ed. Barely got by with the skin on the skin of my with the skin of my teeth. How's that go? By the skin of my teeth. What? I barely got by. And I graduated. And I went down there to be a teacher. And um, what happened was, is my alcoholism progressed. And the things that I swore I would never do in my life started to happen to me. I will never do that. And then it happened. And I did that. And what happened was the world started to come in incrementally toward me. And all the things I swore I'd never do, values, things that were, you know, part of my moral fiber just were being stripped away from me because of my drinking. I didn't have a choice as an alcoholic woman drinking um, because of the situations that I would get myself into. And somewhere along the way there, I met a guy in college. And um, this guy was the biggest drunk at my school, except for his lower companion. And they scared the hell out of me. One of them, the guy that I met, was very attractive, and I liked him a lot, and we dated briefly. But he was an alcoholic. And I told him we couldn't date if he was going to be um, drunk all the time. And one time he came over to my apartment, and he was drunk. And I said, no, because you see, I'm not an alcoholic. You guys have a problem. Everyone out there has a problem. This is not about me. And uh, he said, I'm always drunk. You know, whatever flipped me off or whatever he did and walked away. And, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and he was right. He always was drunk. And he was obnoxious and belligerent. And I adored him because that's the kind of man I, I'm drawn to. And um, 
And so what happened was six months before I left for California and graduated college, this man got sober, and um, and he began his journey in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so when I left Oregon to go to California, he had six months of sobriety. And five years later, we had kept in loose contact through telephone conversations, and I had tried every imaginable form of being comfortable on the planet. I had tried rock and roll girl. I had tried surfer girl. I had tried businesswoman. I had tried every imaginable costume you can think of to try to feel like I was part of this world, and I never was enough. I got fired from every job I had down there. Um, I did substitute teach for a year, try to utilize my my degree. turns out I don't really like kids in large doses, you know, 32 of them coming at you. Um, I have a very short fuse, and I got in trouble for saying a few foul words to some second graders. I don't know what the problem is with that. (laughs) And um, I got written up, and so... Um, and, and so what happened was this person had stayed in loose contact with me, and I ended up living with a guy who had hair longer than this, and we just thought we were the rock and roll couple, and uh, we didn't sleep in the same room. I couldn't stand him. I thought he was an idiot and stupid as dirt, but uh, he looked cool once in a while. Then he gained 50 pounds, whatever. Um, and he had a motorcycle, and he sang in a rock and roll band, and we lived in Hollywood right off the strip. And, and I was trying that on, that persona, to try to get comfortable. And I drank almost every day. I have a very binge mentality because um, I, I'm always trying to convince myself that I'm something I'm not. Like if I screwed around with somebody and uh, accidentally had sex, I would be like, well, that wasn't really sex, you know, because I didn't have any intention of having sex. And so, you know, and I would just talk myself out of it. I lied to myself who I was all the time. Now, if you drink every day, um, you're an alcoholic. That's the bottom line. That's what I thought. So I would um, go out to the clubs and binge, and I loved it. I, I loved to binge. I loved to puke. I loved to puke in my hair. Um, I loved to puke on you. I loved to, I'm the porcelain worshiping goddess, and I probably threw up every third time I drank. I broke out in hives on my neck. Um, every single time I consumed alcohol, I'm probably breaking out now. I'm hive prone. And, um, I get, I have rosacea. I have really pink, pink cheeks. And I, I look like a clown. And I just, um, I'm a lot of fun. I love to talk. And I did this as often as possible, but not as often as my father. Because in my mind, I knew that he was an alcoholic. And if you came home and you made that sound in a glass with the ice, you got a problem. Um, and I did not want to be that. And I didn't understand that I did not have a choice. I was already that. That was who I was. And often I would think, what is wrong with me? Why can't I just make this work? Why am I so miserable? I mean, I would just, I would sob and just be racked with just sobs and just, you know, rocking in my room, just miserable to my core because I couldn't, I couldn't lock into this bliss that everyone else seemed to have. And um, so I kept getting these phone calls from this guy. And one day he said, you know what? He would always say, I'm downstairs. And my heart would go, he's downstairs. And I'm living with this other guy who were sleeping in separate rooms and stuff. And um, I thought, you know what? I really would love to see this guy. And so one day he was in Southern California. He lived in Portland, Oregon. And he and his father and brother came and hooked up with me and my girlfriend in uh, Laguna Hills. I was out partying the night before, got in 
early, like 3.30 in the morning, because, you know, the bar's closed, then you got to go to Marie Callender's, you got to do a little chicken pot pie before you do the big long drive home. And uh, we pull over on the side of the freeway, and she said, I am too drunk, I can't drive. And I'm thinking, for God's sake, it's your car, that's why I drank like a fish. So she, and we switched places, and I drove home with one eye, um, bumming out because I didn't have my peanut butter with me, because I always have peanut butter in my car, because I knew I could shove that in my mouth and do a little, oh, I'm not drinking after, because it would smell like peanut butter. This was my thinking. And... Uh, <laughs> Unbelievable. And and so we got home, and the next day, this man and his brother and his father drove up. And at this point, this man was about five years sober, a little almost five and a half years sober. And he got out of the car, and I don't mean to sound like a goofy little, you know, romantic girl, but I felt like lightning hit me through the top of my head. It was weird. And immediately my brain said, I'm going to marry this guy. And I've known this guy for like seven years. I was like, I'm going to marry him. And so I went home. And this man that I've been living with, I couldn't leave him because my self-esteem was this big. And um, all I could think about was, how can I kill him and just, like, pull him apart and not get blood in the house and, like, drive down the road and get rid of the body parts without getting caught? It's a normal thought, I think, to have about someone that, you know, you're living with. Because I didn't have the ability to leave this relationship. Um, and I believe this is all part of my alcoholism. Um, and so... This man and I went and we hung out, and this person said something to me that will not necessarily sound profound now, but it changed my life. We were just going for a drive to, from Laguna Hills into the coastal communities, and in the process of talking, he said, you know what, Barb, you deserve to be happy. And I don't know if anyone had ever said that before, but it was like he had um, punched me in the face in a loving way, you know, like, kunk. I kind of was like, I do? And... Um, I went home after that, and within six weeks, I had moved out of that apartment, and I had moved to Portland, Oregon, and taken this man hostage, who um, who essentially had saved my life by saying that. And by taking him hostage, I mean that I came up here and I said, since you don't drink, I won't drink, no big deal. And within a very short period of time, <laughs> a very short period of time, um, I tried, and I don't know if I did or he can tell you because he was sober and I was insane, but um, tried to jump out of the car for theatrics. One time he, like, touched me and I flew across the bed and popped up on the other side. I was like, you hit me! You know, it was all about theatrics and poor me and ugh. And, um, and then the cops were called on us because, you know, we were th throwing eggs and, and coffees and, oh, we were just a delight. And this man's five and a half years sober. And it just goes to show, I mean, a lot of times people say, oh, you know, I just went and hung out with my old friends and I just went and did this. And I'm like, hmm red light, my experience is that is very dangerous because when I hang out with people that are still doing the stuff that I used to do or living that mentality, I tend to play down in my game. I don't, I don't see them rising up to the occasion very often. And so um, at about 2.30 or something in the morning, this man <laughs> said to me, after just such a delightful few weeks of our relationship, um, and I mean, this poor guy, I mean, he had said that he had loved me since the first time he saw me. You know, and then now I was finally there and we were free to have a life together and, and I was completely disemboweling this relationship and I was more uncomfortable than I'd ever been and I hadn't had a drink for a couple of weeks. And so don't you know I'm not an alcoholic? I haven't drank. And he said, geez, if you could drink, what would you do? You know, he was just like, what would you do if you could drink? And, um, 
I was very new in Portland. I'd, I'd never lived here. And I said, oh, I'd go down to Santa Fe and Northwest 23rd, and I'd double shot Corval Gold with a beer back. And then I'd go over to the Mission Theater, and I'd get a pitcher of beer and, you know, and basically go from there. And my mind tells me in my memory that his eyes kind of got a, a little bit bigger. <laughs> like, what? And then um, he said, well, if your mom could drink, what would she do? My mom is not an alcoholic. And I said, she'd probably order um, a grasshopper, which is some weird mint drink. I don't know what the hell. And um, I don't know what that is. But um, And she usually sips it, and, and then it starts to evaporate. And it, it runs neck and neck, evaporation, sippage, evaporation. You know, she just doesn't, alcohol does nothing for her. Makes her feel a little bit sleepy. A little sleepy. Um, and he said, well, what would your dad, what would your dad do if he'd sworn off drinking? And I said, oh. He'd go down to uh, Santa Fe and have a double shot Corval Gold with a beer back. And then he'd go over, and I stopped short, and I looked at this man, and I said, oh, my God. And this had never occurred to me. I said, am I an alcoholic? And he said, well, can't answer that. It's a self-diagnosed disease. And I was like, oh, my God. And I knew at that moment that was my moment of clarity. I'm an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic. I have never had a drink except one time I had some sake at lunchtime at a sushi restaurant with my boss, and, and I didn't have any money, and they bought a little thing of sake, and we each had one little thing of sake. That's the only time I've had one drink in my life. And so for 12 years, I had never had one drink, ever. And I never knew if I was going to have six beers or 16 beers. I never knew. And I had every intention of being the designated driver. And everyone always thought I should be because I looked normal. You know, I really seemed like I was normal. I could just pound it away. And so... I called up um, the hotline, and a very elderly voice answered, and, he, and I was crying, and I was, I was really upset because I can't start this relationship off being a drunk. Is that going to work? I don't, what? <laughs> you know, I cannot be my father. I cannot be my father. You know, no, no. And the older man on the other end said, um, Barb, or, you know, I think he said, sweetie, sweetie, what would you like to do? And I'm not sure what he meant, but what I said through tears was I just need a drink and normal people don't say that normal people don't call the AA hotline <laughs> um, you know and um, the next day I was in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and um, how am I doing I'm one of those people that can't keep track of time but when you're up here I judge you for not <laughs> keeping track of time <laughs> how much time Eight minutes. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Um, so I went to my first meeting, and I raised my hand as being in my first meeting, and every single person in that room spoke to me. They all welcomed me, and they all shared a little bit of what it was like, what happened was like now, and they saved my life. And immediately in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I felt a part of something. And even though it scared me to death, I knew I had found my people. I knew it. And I'm an only child, and my parents are divorced, and I am a very lonely, isolating woman. And I knew I'd never be alone again. I knew that. I found my family. Um, you know, I've decided to not have children, and I, I feel like I, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I have brothers and sisters and children and mothers and everything I could ever need here. And it's the most amazing life ever. Um, I proceeded to do those steps with someone in the rooms of, that had done these steps in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and I hit my knees on step three. I did the third step prayer. First step almost killed me. I did not believe I was powerless over alcohol, but I knew my life was unmanageable. And slowly I did learn that um, I am powerless over alcohol. And I'm told you need to do that step 100%. And I'm here to tell you that if... If you haven't done it 100% and truly don't believe it, it can be painful to be here, but you can still be here. 
And I stayed here until I heard your stories and I heard someone tell my story and I realized, oh, so when you go out and have the intention of having three drinks and you have, you know, 16, that's a little powerlessness. When you, you know, intend to not do this with this guy and you drink and then you do do this, that's powerlessness. There's, you know, a lot of examples of, of where alcohol took me and, and how powerless I was. Um, the steps were profound for me because I had always believed in God and I hated him. And the reason I hated him was because he hated me. I was a sinner, a big sinner. And my church, they say, if you think it, you might as well do it. So I did because, you know, (laughs) might as well do it. And I was in a lot of trouble with God, and I was very afraid of God. And um, so I did, you know, steps two and three. I did the third step prayer on my knees in the bathroom. I did a thorough fourth step. I mean, amazing. I put down everything Everything. I thought to myself, I cannot hold any of this back anymore. It's not okay. Um, and I mean, I just did every resentment and every fear and every sexual thing that I felt any kind of emotion around. Um, and I, was, I figured I might as well be safe than sorry. So I just put it all down. I put it all down. I read it to this person. Um, we did steps six and seven. They didn't make a lot of sense to me. But I did see that there was something about defects of character, and it scared me to death. And the longer I stay sober, the more I realize what a powerful gift that is to be able to continue to look at ourselves and grow and see that, um, you know, I am not white as snow, and I don't believe I ever will be, and that's a relief. I don't have to be perfect. I have no desire to be perfect anymore. I used to want to hurt myself if I wasn't perfect. I would scream at myself if I wasn't perfect. I would quit jobs if I wasn't perfect. Um, I'd move to another town if I wasn't perfect. Um, It was too painful to not be perfect. And I believe that's God's job. He's perfect, and I'm not. And what a relief that is. Um, I did an eight-step list with this person, and I went out and I made amends. I made uh, financial amends. I made direct amends. Um, Some people, it was not safe for me to do a face-to-face amends. I did written amends. Um, And I completed that that list. I needed to. I mean, I even called a bar in New York City where I stole a bunch of shot glasses and beer glasses and filled my sleeves up in this, you know, trench coat. And, and, uh, you know, and I called McSorley's Pub in New York City and said, let's just suppose that somebody, you know, (laughs) stole these things. What would that cost today? Because, you know, the bartender, it's none of her business what I'm doing. And I wrote them a letter and I sent them a money order, not a check that I could cancel, remorsefully, like, oh, no, I can't have my money. But money, it was gone. It was theirs, whether it was, you know, cashed or not, not my business. And um, and today I, I live in 10, 11, and 12. And that encompasses all the steps. And, um, you know, the first thing I did in my 10th step ever, ever, that was profound for me was that um, I made direct amends immediately on the spot right then and there, to my dog, and he saved my little life. He is my perfect example, my dog Bob, many of you have met. He's my perfect example of God. Um, I have a very volatile temper. It's gotten better over the years through working the steps and staying in these rooms and trying to improve my conscious contact with God, but I I tend to um, be quick to temper, and this dog got the full brunt of that. In my early recovery, I got him at eight months sober. He's my sober dog, and... I had gotten him into such a little um, fearful ball that he had peed himself, and um, and that's just sick. That makes me sick with myself. I feel, and I used to beat his bottom <laughs> hard, not in a little smacky sort of way. Just, I mean, I was very violent to this dog. And um, one day, I don't know why, but it occurred to me that I needed to make amends to this animal. And I looked him right in the face and I said, "Oh my God, I am so sorry." And he loved me and licked me, and I did it again. 
And what I realize is that not only am I sorry, but I need to let him know that this behavior will not continue to the best of my ability. And I need to be accountable. I can't just be willing to not be a violent dog mommy. I have to do the actions of a nonviolent dog mommy. And um, that dog today is completely broken and insane, but he doesn't piss himself anymore because I don't go to those extremes in my volatility. And um, he just kind of came out of the chute goofy. That's what I've been told. But he's been... Perfect gift to me to figure out, you know, what God is and how to work my tenth step. And um, it took me a long time to take a look at my day and do a nightly inventory and be accountable for things and um, kind of do a little a checklist of, you know, what I did and didn't do right during the day. But I'm learning to do that. This is progress, not perfection. Um, I continue to prove my conscious contact with God, and I do that through prayer and meditation. I did not start meditating till I was 10 years sober. I was unwilling to do that. It seemed too culty to me. Um, and I have come to find that either you do this whole package or you die. And I don't mean you die like you're six feet under. I mean you die like you're a vacuous hole. You're just walking around vacant. You know, I've met those people. I'm related to those people, and I don't want that. If I'm going to be on the planet and it looks like I'm going to be here a long time, i got good blood pressure and all that stuff, I want to be happy, joyous, and free. I insist on it. And, um, you know, and that's one of the ways that I can listen to God. I hit my knees every morning, and then I sit down wherever I need to in the house, and I listen. I try to listen. And sometimes it's for 30 seconds, and sometimes it's for 30 minutes. And and then finally, step 12, I, I can really take this message to other alcoholics. I try to be of service in every way, shape, and form. I do sponsorship. Um, I set up chairs. Um, I'm an intergroup rep. I do these things. When I first got sober, I made coffee for a year and a half at my home group, and I thought no one else could make coffee like me. And one day they said, you need to maybe give up this position let someone else make coffee. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, oh, my God, I'm going to relapse um, because I have to make coffee, you know. But uh, it, what it did is it made me get to that meeting every single Tuesday, and those women got to know me. And if I wasn't there, they worried about me, and I was accountable, and I'd never been accountable to anything. I just quit things. It's too much too much responsibility. Um, so anyways, that in a nutshell is the, the joys of being an alcoholic Barbara on the planet Earth in, uh, on the west coast of America. It's uh, not that exciting, but I'm sure some of you can identify with it. And um, for a topic, I thought I'd quickly read something out of the big book, and um, and then you'll you'll understand what the topic is when I read it. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though who usually doesn't think so. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid, rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. So I thought the topic could be, you know, selfishness, self-centeredness, and how that's affected you and maybe how that's changed in your recovery. Thanks for letting me be of service.
My name is Chris. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, thanks, Barb. Uh, selfishness, uh, just like what uh, was read, is uh, like all things in my life. Is uh, I can't, you know, I cannot take the bull by the horns and will things away. I have to take actions that are uh, by nature unnatural to me and um, and practice and participate in those actions and and getting rid of things like selfishness and self-centeredness is a byproduct of other actions. Um, I, I'm not somebody that does real well taking a a issue in my life, no matter what it is, selfishness in this case, and saying, I'm going to work on selfishness. Um, I know people do because I hear them say it in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I'm working on my selfishness. Uh, that, for me, you know, I'm, I'm powerless and my life's unmanageable uh, today, just as it was when I originally got here. And, uh, and for me to try to work on something like selfishness um, is an act of self-will for me. Um, I can take and create an environment in my life through other actions uh, of being of service and, and doing inventory work and, uh, and sharing that with somebody and identifying with somebody and then uh, becoming willing to have that removed and asking God to remove it and making amends and, and, uh, and doing prayer and meditation and working with others and, and so forth. And as a, as a result of that work, having some of my selfishness and self-centeredness reduced. Um, I heard a guy uh, one time say, and I really like this, uh, he says that a, a farmer doesn't grow. A farmer uh, plants or creates a fertile environment uh, where growth can take place, plants a seed, and God grows. And a physician doesn't heal. What a physician does is creates a sterile and, uh, and uh, an environment where healing can take place, and then God heals. And he says, we don't change ourselves. We take actions that creates an environment where change can take place, and then God changes us. And uh, and that's kind of the way I view that type of stuff is... Uh, is that I can't take a frontal assault. I have to take other actions that may seemingly, from the surface, seem like they're not related. But when I do that stuff, that stuff's, that stuff's reduced. And when I stay in that, that stuff continues to not be such a prevalent issue in my life um, as it was. With that being said, selfishness and self-centeredness is something that is... Uh, is not uh, something that has been removed from me. Like I've heard some people say they, in their fist steps, uh, it's gone. And uh, uh, that's a, a thing that I have to continue to uh, work the steps and so forth and uh, and has continued to progressively get better. Kind of like uh, what the 12 by 12 talks about with that, uh, some of our stuff's patient improvement. And that's certainly been the case with uh, the selfishness. Thanks. Thanks, Barb. My name's Anna. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. Everybody, and I, uh, I really enjoyed listening to you, and um, I sure identified. But uh, especially with that selfish and self-centeredness and self-seeking, and I remember, gosh, about a year ago, 
I was um, I was certain my husband was incorrect in the way he was behaving towards me. I mean, I was positive about it, and I kept thinking, you know, if only he would do this and only if he would do that. And the more I thought about that, the angrier I got and the meaner I became. And I, it wasn't a day. I mean, it was like weeks going on. And, um, you know, I remember I was praying about it, and I was thinking, and it dawned on me, I'm being self-seeking. You know, I want him to alter the way I feel about something or I want him to make it okay, or whoever it is, but it happened to be my husband. And, um, you know, the minute the minute I could recognize that, I could take a different action. And that's what's important to me is, you know, I, I can't get rid of that selfishness, but it does tell me what you just read. I have to try or it's going to kill me. And my nose is running, so excuse me. Not that anybody cares, but I do. I'm thinking, oh, there's this booger showing, you know. Great. Can you hear what I say? So anyway, um I won't hold anybody's hands during the Lord's Prayer, but uh, thank you. Um, so anyway, uh, I do know that there are certain actions that I can take that, like it was mentioned, that uh, go against my nature. I remember when I was new in sobriety, and my father actually told me if I put myself at least third or fourth on the list, I'm going to be okay. And that was hard for me because I wanted to put myself on the top of everybody else's list. I mean, I really was so self-seeking and, you know, I mean, not was. I still am not as much as I was. It doesn't rule my life and make me miserable like it did. I mean, you talked about that shy and that self-obsession. That's what I told what shy was. You know, I'd say, oh, I'm shy. And they say, no, dear, that's self-obsession. You know, oh, okay. (laughs) I hate you now. But, um, (laughs) but, uh. You know, it doesn't rule my life like it did, and I could catch it much quicker um, because I do have that relationship with God, and I and I am active in the steps, and I'm active in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I know for me, it is all a byproduct of what I do here. And um, you know, I could, I might not always, how I feel is irrelevant to what I do, and eventually I'll feel better. You know, and I was taught that here. I um, I have a very active life in what I do, and I. You know, there will be times where I'll think, when is it about me? And when I, and when I, you know, hurry up and get everything done, then it's about me. I'm bored or I'm irritated or, you know, it's like I, I'm better off when I'm more concerned with you or I'm participating with you in your life. Because I too, um, you know, was an isolator because it was much easier to live in the world that I made up in my head. You know, because I'm comfortable there because I'm queen of it, you know. <laughs> so today I get to just be one among many and, um, you know, I, I don't know I know, left to my own devices, I will be as selfish and self-centered and self-seeking as I was. And uh, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't have to be so self-seeking, and the rest begins to dissipate through these actions. So, thanks. My name's Scott, and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you, Barb. I really enjoyed what you had to say. And uh, welcome, John, Dave. Um, you know, I think about selfishness and self-centeredness, and um, that's an overwhelming prospect for me to really grasp because after doing a real fourth step instead of just something that I thought was a fourth step, you know, I look at I look at the fact that uh, I've been living my whole life based and making decisions based upon what I was going to get out of whatever the situation was. It was all about me. And I I would constantly hear my mom um, say, God damn it, Scott, the world doesn't revolve around you. You know, I heard that my whole, throughout my whole uh, growing up. And um, 
you know, that, that was constant, uh, saying in my, uh, house. And, um, you know, so that's, you know, I, I've come to know that. I love it when you say, you know, you were born an alcoholic. I, I just really firmly believe that. I, there weren't, a, you know, a certain set of circumstances that made me an alcoholic. Um, you know, cause when I first found alcohol, that was my solution. That took away all those feelings of inadequacy and feeling less than and not a part of and, and, um, you know, and I had this ism, you know, way back, you know, before alcohol was even there. And, um, you know, but in looking at the four step and, and, uh, you know, I, I learned that, uh, the resentments that I wrote down, I mean, about 99% of all those resentments that I, that I thought I had towards people, places, and things, um, were just me and my perception on how I took it in. And, uh, no one went out of their way to screw me. Um, you know, that, that just wasn't, that wasn't the deal. And I really thought that that's what it was. And, uh, and, um, if you could only see it my way, you'd understand. And, um, you know, so, you know, selfishness, as Chris was talking about, I so really appreciated what, what he had to say, um, regarding that. You know, I can't just turn it on and off like a switch. Um, I can't say I'm working on my selfishness today, you know, and, uh, and be a better person. What I can do is I can get up in the morning, I can say the third step prayer, and I can ask my higher power to direct my thinking as he would have me be. And hopefully, hopefully, you know, I'll, I'll be a better person as a result of that. Um, and, and maybe talking with other alcoholics, uh, working with other alcoholics, going to meetings, talking with my sponsor, um, doing those, those, and being of service, and uh, and just doing things that that don't have anything to do with me, um, you know, and and maybe hopefully through that kind of action that I won't be so selfish. But I, I know that's something that I was born with. Um, it's a part of me, and if I want to live a life that's free and treat others. How I seemingly, I think I want to be treated, which I really don't know how I want to be treated, but, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I gotta take those, those types of actions that I'm learning from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to get there. Um, this program's awesome. I mean, I'm comfortable with the fact today that I really don't know anything. You know, I, I just don't know anything. And um, I'm such a little child, and I'm, I'm learning, and I can be infantile. I can be just just this little puke, you know, when I look back at it and, and just, you know, and hopefully, you know, I'll, I'll know that that's maybe not the way to do things. And, um, you know, but I'm comfortable with that because now, now I have the capacity to maybe learn. And, um, you know, for me, Alcoholics Anonymous is about doing the things that I, I generally just don't want to do. Um, you know, but when I, when I do them, I, I get something out of it without even knowing it. Um, because I want to stay sober. You know, I want to have that chance that I see others that have gone before me in this. They've done the steps and they, and they go, they keep going to meeting. They just don't do the one meeting or a month check in. You know, they don't do that. And, you know, they, they go to meetings three or four or five a week, you know, and they got 20 years of sobriety. You know, that to me is amazing. You know, and that, that's what I want. That's what I want. I just don't want to, you know, just, I don't want to be that because I've known people that just do that little check-in thing and, 
and they don't have what I want. You know, they they don't have that. Um, and it's very selfish of them not to do that. Uh, but, uh, you know, anyway, um, I'm grateful for this program. I'm grateful that I am a selfish person with a chance to be better. Thank you. Hi, my name's Sally. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Once again, you just open up more things, um, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, as an alcoholic, um, there's a lot of things that I've hidden in my life, and I've been hiding in a bottle or in drugs for years. And by coming to meetings and listening to other people, I get to have the light shine on those things that I've hidden from that I have no clue about. I get to learn about selfishness. I get to learn about self-righteousness. I get to learn about denial. I get to learn all those things, but it takes work. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous does for me. It helps me do the work, because without the work, I don't have anything. I really don't. And I don't want to work. I want the easier, softer way. I really do. I do today. It would be great if I could get up and say, take that pill, it's done. It's not. It's not. It's it's an easier way. Um, when I go and do that, my life is more confusing and more difficult, and I don't want that. I don't want that insanity anymore. Um, it's a very, very scary life. And I, too, was born an alcoholic. I know was, I was born an alcoholic. There's no way. You know, three-year-olds don't get off going to go looking for hard sauce, which is powdered sugar and whiskey that's in the freezer, and taking the bowl and hiding underneath the table and eating it all. Um, the insecurity, the pain, the holes, looking for things. Um, my whole life I've been searching for the answer of why. Why is this so hard? Why can't I do this? Why am I so upset? Um, searched for it in many different religions, many different ways, many different people. Found many different people in my life uh, trying to help me along my way, and the only thing that's worked has been AA. The only thing. Thank God for AA, because I know for a fact, if I were to be back out there, I'd be dead. I would be frontline page, woman found in river, pieces. That's what that's what's out there for me, and I have no desire to go there, because I know that's what drugs and alcohol will do for me. Um, and the selfishness, it's all about me. You know, even if I, if I think, you know, I, I want things, I want a good job, I want a good house, and I want those little things to come to me, and I really, really want them. But that may not be my case. And I'm very pleased at where I am now, because now I have a full life, I'm happy, I'm at peace, and I get challenges day by day. But those challenges help me grow, so I'm really grateful. And I get to meet all these wonderful people in AA that are true and loving and working at something. And it's not the materialistic work. It's the spiritual work and that we're all bound together. So I'm really grateful for that. So thank you, Barbara. I love you a lot. I'm Carl. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, Barb, thanks for leading us tonight. 
Um, I will say something that probably no one's heard before is I, I, I never want to be an alcoholic like my mother. Actually, it was more like my father. My mom was drunk, but my father was more drunk. So, um, since, since I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I, I've had a lot of great gifts. Um, the first one, when, when God decided that I wasn't cured of alcoholism, um, he directed me to a sponsor. And, and he gave me some special readings, you know, from the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I started to read it, um, just how many things actually just applied to my life. Um, there's so many, I'll just start with, I'll just mention one, um, which is one of the first readings that he wanted me to read, was uh, this is the how and why of it. That's where it starts on the bottom of page 62. And just how... Our lives being as selfish as we are, just how in, in, in my life, just how not in control. You know, if everybody did things the way that I wanted them to do, I mean, just looking back, whether I was drinking or not drinking, I, I focused on that. All of my uh, frustration, um, disappointment, it came because... People didn't do things the way I wanted it to do, and just to be able to have, you know, uh, a sense of that it's okay if people don't do what I, do, you know, what I want them to do, because, you know, I'll be okay. And uh, you know, from from taking certain suggestions and and doing. Um, and I, I think in the very beginning it was it was really hard for me because you know I have my my will is is probably one of the one of the biggest things that I've had to to beat down my self will and uh, you know like I said when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous I was beat up I was beat up bad and um, you know every everything I have today in my life um, is because of Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, a God that you know. I've always felt was there. I think he was, you know, testing me. And um, that's about enough. Thanks. Hi, my name is Deborah. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you so much um, for being my friend and for being my sponsor. And, um, you know, and, you know, and, and listening to that, um, into your share and stuff like that. God, you know, the thoughts come. And I remember being like five years old, 1972, listening to Carly Simon. You're so vain. Think she was singing about, about me. Anyways, um, just about with the selfishness and self-centeredness and stuff like that. Um, after doing many inventories and seeing how I step on the toes of others and seeing that I had natural instincts and then they just go off the charts and all this stuff and, you know, and being sober and, like, I notice I'm still doing the same things. When people say I let go and let God and I just don't do that, I just never got that one. It was just like I just didn't let go of drinking, you know. It was like at first I was like it was just it was just taken from me. I was blessed and then I had to do the work. And um, and I just wanted to share a couple little, I don't, I don't know if they're tricks, but the, my first sponsor would always say to me, and it was usually around relationships, practice what about them instead of what about you. 
And I've heard through the years, check your motivation. So I'm just noticing all the time when I start getting in self, and she's like, what about you? I want to hear about you. Not so much to get out of me, but yeah, to get out of me. But I just noticed, like in doing that, it was interesting. I, I went out with somebody last night. It was my AA birthday, and I love you guys. I mean, sobriety um, in AA out here in Portland since I've been out here. It's been a little over three years. It's just really... I knew it was going to be okay. I left my old home group, and I said, you know, I'm going to bloom where I'm planted, and I'm just, I got a job to do, and it's going to be great. And that's just been my experience. So anyways, I went out with this person, and I saw the mind, you know, go in one direction. I was like, no, what about them? And I actually feel like I got a new friend out of the situation. And I just think about, it just comes to me now, it's just like, you know, like all those years where I didn't do stuff like that where it was all about me. You know, um, I don't want to lament on it or anything, but it's like there's a lot of people I didn't even know anybody, really. I didn't know my parents. Just kind of like, but, you know, we have a chance now, and I'm just so grateful for that. And that in doing an inventory, I mean, you guys have shown me that reality wasn't even what I thought it was. And that I can redo everything my childhood, how I see myself, and be able to comfort myself and not to look for comfort in the bottle. Men has been another story, but I'm working on that, you know. Um, and I guess I needed to say that because I would hear people up here sharing stuff, and I would go, oh, my God, they got some serious problems. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And I really get to see the longer I stay here, I'm just a garden variety alcoholic and a garden variety person. And I think I just need to say that publicly because I just think sometimes I'm just all that in a bag of chips. And I am in my own little world. <laughs> um, but that it, I just noticed that this thing about honesty, I could see where it's like they're honest and honesty really makes a difference because then there's always something that you always think, but they really don't know me, but they really don't know me. And I just feel like I'm being cracked open at 11 years in a really sweet way that it's like, no matter what happens to me, I'm okay, it's okay. And that's really, wow. So anyways, thank you, and welcome to everybody that's new. And that's all, thank you. My name's Rick. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Rick. I, uh, I too. You know, it's scary. Uh, feel like I'm a woman alcoholic. I identified so much there. I mean, might have to go in for surgery. I don't know. Uh, I, uh, the root of the problem really for me is the selfishness and self-centeredness. I, uh, I can remember sitting in the house. We'd have this moment of, a family movie, you know, and I'd stop the thing and say, we're taking a break. I run down to my office in the basement, you know, have a few shooters, do some other substances and come back up, you know. And what are they thinking? What are you doing? Start the movie over. After a while, I didn't know where the movie stopped and the, everything, you know, just kind of. And I can remember I, I get sober and uh, I'm freaked out. You know, my family does an intervention on me, and I'm like, 
God, Jack, I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose my kids. I'm going to lose my job. And he's finally, he's a blind guy, but he's shaking me. He goes, come here. He starts shaking me. You deserve to lose them. Look at the way you've been treating them. For Christ's sakes, get off of that. Let's work on your recovery. It, it kept me from doing the steps for a long time. I was so frightened that I was going to lose what, you know. Three weeks later, you know, we're talking about my job. He says, well, what's the worst thing I'd ever have you ever? And I said, well, I worked as a dishwasher once. And could you do that again? Yeah. Okay, that's the worst it's going to get. Do you have an education? Well, yeah, I got a couple college degrees. Well, shit, you won't be the dishwasher. You can be a busboy, you know. And then, uh, you know, so, and then I start thinking in my mind. Screw this family. I could walk, I could be a bus boy. I could uh, live in a one-bedroom thing. I could have a lot of time to go to meetings. I'm out of here. I'm leaving this family. He says, hey, wait a minute. That's how selfish I am. To hell with the family that loved me enough to get me to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not putting up with them anymore. They're full of shit. And, and uh, you know, he says, you know what? You've made those guys miserable long enough. I mean, you've just tortured this poor family. He goes, I want you to treat them like new people in Alcoholics Anonymous. In fact, tonight when you go home, I want you in our house. There was this long family room, dining room, and it led back to a kitchen area. He goes, when you go into that kitchen, I want you to stand up in front of your family and say, I am going into the kitchen. Can I get something for anyone else? When I did that, my wife's going, ah! She started crying. My kids were freaked out, wondering, wow, what happened? Because I wasn't thinking of me once. That was the first action I took to do something for them, and it just freaked them out. Now, I'll tell you, I'm not healed of this. I mean, I'm still very, I, I will still stop the movie if I, you know. But it, it's, uh, it's to the point where something happened the other night. I went and picked up my daughter at the airport. She, fly, I, she is going to school in Spokane. It's like a six-hour drive, to, you know, one way. Finally got her talked into flying home, you know, saving the miles on the car. And, and, and I said, yeah, I'd love to go pick you up. And, and so I picked her up at the airport. When I got home, she had like a ton of bricks in this bag. And I said, just dunk, and it wasn't me, but I said, you know, Shannon, this bag's pretty heavy. Can I carry it upstairs for you? And that just came out of me. It was like I didn't think of it. And, and later on, my wife said, you know, this is really strange because, you know, you carried her bag up for her. You went and picked her up at the airport without thinking about it. You know, but I'm, I'm still a really selfish person, but those are miraculous things for a guy like me. And, it, you know, I've been making friends with a guy that I haven't, I've kind of known, but I've been really making friends with him, picking him up and bringing him to meetings on occasion. And, uh, I think about it in a selfish way. It's like, well, it's on my way. You know, big deal. What if it was out of my way? You know, would I go out of my way? Hell no. It's on my way, so I'll do it. Then the other thing is, you know, uh, and then it's like, but I get a lot out of this guy. It's, it's still about me. It's what am I getting out of it? It's better for me than it is for him. But that's the lesson that we learn here. We learn the actions of love. The giving that we do really brings us. It's like my, my daughter told me. She says, you know, these Christian service projects are so cool. It's really not a selfless thing. Because I feel so good when I'm, when I'm loving another person, when I'm putting that word into action, when I'm giving I get something out of it that I want to get that again. I want to love more. I want to get more. And that's what happens to us as we kind of change here. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous has begun to do for me. Just the fact that I can go, you know, out of myself a little bit is a huge miracle for a guy that had no idea that that was going to happen to me, believe me. So, um, once again, Barbara, thank you. Uh, great, great story. And, uh, thanks for, for leading us this evening and thanks for calling on me.
Bruce. I'm an alcoholic. Thanks for your story. It was great. I'm just like you. Um, just the Baptist upbringing. And my bottom was kind of like yours. Just when I, my disease was so powerful when I realized that I was really an alcoholic. That was really it for me. And then I had to do something about it. But um, my disease had taken me to a place where um, <clears throat> my world had just gotten smaller and smaller. And um, I was virtually alone. And um, when I uh, finally admitted I was an alcoholic and decided I was going to do something about it and um, started coming to AA, that was really uh, that was really a big turning point. And when I and when I got to the Johns Landing Group, and uh, the very first meeting I got to at the Johns Landing Group, I don't want to forget it because um, you know, I'm scared. And uh, after that meeting, um, you know, people came up to me, and um, just getting that from people, just coming up to me and talking to me, and it was like, at that moment, I knew it was going to be okay. It was like I wasn't alone anymore, and um, and that I didn't have to do it alone, and that was really big for me. So um, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks a lot for your story. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.